Blog Talk Radio. They said you wouldn't make it so far. And ever since they said it, it's been hard. But never mind the night you had to cry. Cause you had never let it go inside. You worked too hard. You know exactly what you want and need. So believe. And you can never give up. Welcome. You are listening to Get Into It with Tina Conroy, and I am your host on Blog Talk Radio. The phone lines will be open, and you can do so by calling 516-387-1936. Also, the chat room is open on Blog Talk Radio. To do that, go to blogtalkradio.com, find my show, and join the chat. And in the chat room, you can post questions. Of course, you can be anonymous or feel free to use your name. So hello, everybody, and welcome on this beautiful day, April 8th, Wednesday, April 8th. I am always so grateful to be with all of you, if you're listening live or on the podcast. I am so grateful to share with you a very special guest. And before I bring her on, I wanted to just come back to our focus of this show and the focus of this year. My intention for the show is about intuition. That intuition is for each and every one of us to tap into that, to create that muscle, to strengthen it, and for all areas of our life, to tap into that very important sense that we all have so that our life becomes purposeful, meaningful, enlightened, and full of miracles. And we'll be talking about miracles today. My guest, Karen Henson-Jones, has inspired me. I was fortunate enough to hear her on a radio station, Hay House Radio, and I was so inspired by her message, by her transformation, and by her words, and of course, by the book, Heart of Miracles, her journey back from a near-death experience. And I reached out to her, and I am so grateful to talk to her today. We did speak on Monday, and we had a a wonderful, wonderful conversation, and we just connected. So I love the fact that we can be all connected, which we are, in this consciousness. I would like to center. So just take a moment, as we do every week. Go ahead and close your eyes. And if you feel called, bring your hands together to prayer pose. Today, I would like to say a prayer a prayer that is written in Karen's book when she visits Italy, Assisi. And as we begin, we call upon the divine God blessings for guidance, help, protection. We call upon the archangels, angels, guardian angels, and spirit guides. For all spiritual teachers, holy gurus, masters, and spiritual helpers, 
we thank you. We thank you for protection, illumination, and our guidance. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. And where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. Just take another moment, keeping your hands in prayer pose, center of your heart. Connect to the center of your heart, place of love and compassion. Bless yourself, each and every one on this call, co-workers, family, friends, city, state, and home, and Mother Earth. And just take a moment with any personal intentions that you may have. And then slowly take a nice, long, deep breath in. Exhale away. Release your hands. Gently come back to the room and open your eyes. It's one of my very most favorite prayers. I say it almost daily. And when I saw it in Karen's book, I just knew that we had connected even once again. Karen was on the conventional path to success in the corporate world when a sudden cardiac event at the age of 30 took her to the brink of death. During an otherworldly experience, she pled to stay here on earth. When her request to live was granted, Karen was forced to come to terms with the life she had been living. With warmth, wonder, and wit, she brings us with her on a journey through India, Italy, Bhutan, and Israel in search of a more meaningful life. Her journey is filled with light and lightness. As she crosses countries and cultures on her way to healing and understanding, Karen shows us that love is a song that heals us all. Karen is the author of Heart of Miracles, My Journey Back to Life After a Near-Death Experience. Her speaking engagements include authors at Google and Mountain View and Hay House, I Can Do It in Denver. She has been featured in Yoga Journal, Russia, and LA Yoga. She's a graduate of Cornell and London Business School. I am very honored to bring Karen on the line. Hi, Karen. Are you there? Yes. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. How are you? Good. Thank you so much for that um, that very beautiful introduction and uh, the very powerful prayer. It was really strong. Oh, thank you. It is my, we didn't speak about that on Monday, but it is one of my favorite prayers. And when I, when I ever read it, I always just have this sense of connection to divine. And I, I love the story about that you wrote about it when you were in Italy. So we have so many people that are just 
of course, so excited to hear from you and about your story. And so I thought we would just kind of start off in conversation about um, your experience. And, you know, it brought me to looking over as I, in chapter one, we talked about tap on the shoulder. So, you know, kind of bring us back there, just a little synopsis of, you know, the tap on the shoulder, because we talk about a lot of intuition on the show and that tap on the shoulder back back then, even before anything began, but that little that little gnawing, um, can you bring it, can you talk to us a little bit to our listeners about that, your sense of intuition, even then? Sure. Um, okay, well, I wasn't into spiritual stuff at the time. I, <clears throat> um, I had graduated from business school in, in London, like a lot of Americans do, and, and I took a job at a large corporate bank. It was okay. It was fine. It, it wasn't evil, and uh, it was, you know, <laughs> it's just like you're doing your administration, it, it's almost as if it's like secretarial work, and um, it you know it did have a purpose to it. It brought um, you know I worked in the media capital division, so it brought some really high quality entertainment with positive messages to to the world. So it didn't really feel purposeless, um, but it you know the lifestyle was was something very very specific, and it wasn't a warm place. It wasn't a spiritually enriching place. And the work itself was was very administrative, um, but it was very consuming. So I think a lot of people can do these kinds of jobs, and then they engage in their passions after work, or they get their fulfillment, you know, from an, a weekend spiritual practice. Um, but when you have a job like working in a corporate bank, it's it's absolutely too consuming. The hours are too long, and and you know your mind becomes too occupied with with the work and the tasks to leave room for much else. Right, absolutely. What happened to me was I was, um, so I didn't dislike my job. I wasn't massively fulfilled. It was fine. I didn't really question it, and I didn't really um, see myself making a departure from this route. Um, I thought I was happy enough, and I think that um, amongst my social group, we all thought we were happy enough. And uh, and um one day I was going to work, and I took the subway to work. In London, they call it the tube. And I was very close to my destination to get out to, um, to, to my office. And two stops in advance of that, of that stop, the train started to shake, and the lights went out. And the doors opened, and everybody was evacuated from the, um, from the train. And I remember asking somebody around me, oh, what happened? And they said, oh, it's an electrical thing. I didn't think anything of it, and then um, I I got outside, and there were just masses of people walking around. It was like a movie, and as I got closer to my destination, which is where um, my office was, Liverpool Street Station, then I could see that there are many, many police cars, things were cordoned off, and there were people in hazmat suits, and I didn't realize it at the time, but I had kind of almost walked into this terrorist attack. Um, which was there was a bombing in on the subway trains in in London. I think it went off in four separate locations, and one of them was from a train that was departing from Liverpool Street Station. So that shake that we felt in the train was actually the probably the bomb going off. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so so I wouldn't say it was a narrow escape from death. You know, I tell the story and then it gets distorted as it goes along, <laughs> but it was a. It wasn't a brush with death, but it was a confrontation um, 
with a with a very specific darkness and a confrontation um, with mortality because there were people who were just like me who were killed on this on this subway attack and um so you know after that happened you know work continued as usual but it wasn't the same you know i was still taking the same train taking the same route and i was walking past the same places where the guys with the hazmat suits had been, um, you know, where the same people had been killed. And, you know, the media in London at the time was very consumed by this because it was something that was so uh, extremely unusual. And, you know, I would uh, read the newspaper and I would look at websites every day while I was at work and I would just look at all of these people who died, kind of like these young people or these people who lost limbs and stuff like that. And I wouldn't say it was an obsession, but it was a preoccupation. And I kind of started to wonder, what am I doing with my life? What if that had been me on that train? Um, you know, I came so close. Was this really kind of like the maximum potential for my life? And I think, you know, the answer was definitely was definitely no. And I don't know really what what uh, what stopped me from pursuing something else. I guess I was thinking, like, maybe eventually or one day, or, you know, when I get my student loans paid off, I'll think about something else. Um, but the thought was already there, and it was starting to escalate and accelerate. And it was like a gnawing feeling, and it was one that I just suppressed completely because there was nothing, you know, it was it was there, but it wasn't overtaking a certain threshold where I was forced into a change. Right. And I think I was too comfortable to change. So this is where I really wonder about, you know, these questions of destiny versus fate or if you're supposed to change and you don't listen to it, is something going to turn? Is something going to push you in that direction? And so what happened was, a, um, you know, sometime after that, like some uh, many months after this, this, this event was still lingering. And I, I was living in London. I flew home to Washington, D.C. to visit my parents, and I had a cardiac event. And after I had this cardiac event, which is a cardiac arrest, um, I was diagnosed with a congenital heart condition, and I was told I wasn't able to fly again, and that I should have what's called um, an ICD pacemaker implanted. So I, I took a lot of contemplation. I decided to get this device. I, I, I wouldn't say I didn't think. There was some hesitation, but I, my decision to take the, the device was that it would be um, for my safety. And that mm-hmm. was that was really like the main thing. It was like for my safety to prevent a cardiac arrest or to safeguard me if I were to have a cardiac arrest. And um, and there wasn't too much into investigation into why this cardiac arrest had happened. It was like, oh, it just happens. You know, it's congenital. You're born with it. And um, and I kind of bought it at the time because I couldn't think of any other correlation. Like in my mind, I didn't have, you know, even though I was 30 years old, I really didn't have the knowledge or the information that what you eat or your lifestyle or what you take into your body could be affecting your heart rhythm. Right. Um, and you also you you also mentioned in the book that some of your family members or people close to you um that had this. So was it was a congenital it had some didn't you have a cousin or someone or someone in some side of the family had like sudden death? So you know, they kind was, of thought it was were, um there were two two people who are kind of like remote relatives who had sudden death in their 20s. Oh. Um, but this particular condition, my mother's from the Philippines, and there are a lot of people in the Philippines who, who have this. 
it's like a known thing. It's almost like the SIDS of the Philippines. So I have wow. a girlfriend who's my age, and she has the same thing, and she took the same. It, she took. It was very funny because she um, she had a different kind of operation. We we were both diagnosed around the same time. We were deciding what to do, and I said, "I'm getting the pacemaker because it's safer. You better get the pacemaker." And she <laughs> says, "No, no, no. I'm going to get this operation to get my nerve cut. You better do that. I'm not putting that machine in my body." So I wow. put the machine in my body. And then okay. I almost died. And then I told her, you better never get this pacemaker. And then she did the, the operation to get her nerve cut. She almost died, so she had to get the pacemaker. So now she has the pacemaker, and I took the pacemaker out. Um, As but, fate goes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so so that's what happened. So I had this operation to get the, the pacemaker implanted. Um, I was appraised of the, the, complica- the potential for complications before the surgery, and I read them. Um, but I, I would say the doctors played them off. They're like, oh, this only happens to old people, you know, something like that. And then, you know, in my mind, the complication was death. Like that's, that's like the worst-case scenario. Um, I didn't envision a scenario that I could wake up from the surgery and become severely disabled. I thought, okay, I'm getting a pacemaker implanted. You know, either you could die on the table, you know, some freak complication, or it's going to go well. It didn't occur to me that, um, you know, that one of the options would would be like you'd wake up having three heart surgeries from a coma, and it it just wasn't even described in that those terms, even though it was, you know, in the paperwork. Um, but uh, it's it's something that almost never happens. So, um, you know, I had this. I had this operation. It did not go well. There was a complication, a severe complication, and and they had to do an open heart surgery um, and s- several other repair surgeries um, to you know to re- to reverse the damage. So that's what happened. And then um, yeah, I don't know if you want to continue. With, well, with I guess any I guess when I was reading the book and I kept thinking to myself that what struck me again was that. After the surgery, when you, you know, came out and you were in recovery, and I'm sure you were in the hospital a couple of days, I'm assuming, I don't remember the time frame, and you kept saying, something's not right, something's not right, something's not right. And I, I always think of that because you ha- we always have that kind of, I like to call it like our inner GPS of the soul, that, that little, like, tap on the shoulder and and then every I'm and in the book you refer to oh it's okay you're all right you just feel it more or you'll be fine and but it was like again it was again your this intuitiveness of something's not right something's not right and then going home and you know obviously something wasn't right so did you when you look back on it now I guess did you was it something that you, more and more now I guess you just begin to trust your intuition. I think as we go through things like that, we start to trust more and more. Not that we don't, there are times that we're wrong, you know, like, oh, I want to take this road or should I take that road? And that road has traffic and that road doesn't. I mean, those are simple intuition things. But at the time, did you trust it as much as you do now? Because I feel like even throughout the book, your transformation is just really trusting that inner that inner self, that higher self. Um, I think that was the beginning of it because, um, right. you know, I I was in the hospital. I knew something was wrong, and 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 my my fears were discounted. And I think that's a very common scenario. And I, you know, I think this is where you know medicine and, and doctors can really learn from this. And um, and, and you know, of course, people are going to feel pain. Of course, people are going to act out. I've seen it all the time. I see it in family members and friends. 
and I'm always like, chill out, you're fine, you know, don't be so ridiculous. But there are, you know, minority occasions where you really, really, really have to trust and you just have to hold the line. Mm-hmm. Um, because if something is wrong, something is wrong. And uh, and I think that was the beginning of starting to, to be able to trust myself. And, you know, I don't know, for the good or the worst, it's led to me taking some extremely impractical decisions um, based on my intuition, you know, decisions that would look crazy to anybody else. Right, um, right. But I know that it's the right, the the right thing, the highest, best, good path. It's which is so beautiful because that's that's really where we shine on. We it it takes time. I think I get the that question a lot about trusting intuition. How do you know if it's right or wrong? And it's an interesting thing because. In the times that it doesn't, that you trust your, and I'm using a simple analogy as, say, taking a road to work, you know, taking a drive and saying, I'm going to take this parkway or that parkway, and you go, I'm going to take this parkway, but you don't, and you take the other one, and then you're stuck in traffic. And I, mm. I teach a lot mm. about, in, I teach a lot about intuition. I do intuition courses, and I say in the, what you would say, the wrong or mistake that your your, your intuition failed you, that's really where you learn, because you you learn that oh i i needed to trust more and it's sort of like that same feeling of our lessons our lessons in life you know in the in if it was always working out you know we would discount it but when it doesn't work out and we look back we can say wow i i need to trust this more and then That's the right. wonderful That's right right yeah. and then the the wonderful miracle is the more you trust it as what I found in my life, and I'm sure you, you can say this as well, the more that you trust it and the more that you validate it, the stronger it becomes. It, it, it's like that's a right. force that's, right. that's just amazing. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's absolutely right. Yeah. So take us now. So now I know you had, I guess we'll jump into the near the near death experience. I know that this happened. You were with your parents and um, you went back into cardiac arrest and they took you back to the hospital. Yeah, it was something, to be more specific, it was something called cardiac tamponade because what mm. had happened was that um, during the original surgery, um, an, an atrium was punctured. The atrial wall was punctured, and it started to bleed. And around your heart, you actually have um, a sac that's like a protective sac that's called the pericardium. And if you can imagine an orange with a peel around it. So mm. the orange starts to bleed, and then the, you know, this um, everything starts to swell. It starts to expand, but the sac can only expand so far. It's like a water balloon, and it starts to squeeze the heart and starts to drown the heart in blood. So that's that's what happened, and and it you know was interfering with my heart beating. It kind of, in a sense, drowned the heart. So there's so many different cardiac terms. There's heart attack, which is different than cardiac arrest, you know, which is different than cardiac tamponade. But basically I had this event, and I was not breathing, and I didn't have a pulse. And I, um, and, and, it, and an ambulance was called. And I already felt as though I was out of my body. It was the weirdest, the weirdest mm. experience ever because at this point I wasn't meditating. I wasn't yogi yet. And it was my first kind of um, – I didn't remember my dreams or anything. It was my first kind of interdimensional uh, weirdness. And <laughs> I remember going into the shower because I was burning. I felt like I was on fire. And um, I went into the shower and I put on ice-cold water, and I got into the shower, but I didn't even feel that the water was wet. Wow. And that's when I was 
terrified. You know, people talk about near-death experiences, and they're like, oh, it was so comforting. I saw my angel. And I'm like, it's not like that for everybody, (laughs) you know. If you don't expect something to happen and you're uh, jolted into this, it's it's literally terrifying. And so I was taken to the hospital, and then I was being resuscitated in the ambulance. I was being resuscitated sort of like, you know, constantly. Um, while I was in the emergency room, and by some very good fortune, uh, a cardiologist walked through who wasn't really supposed to be there. He had just come into the building to do some administrative work, to catch up on some paperwork. He walked through the ER because he was accompanying a friend of his who had Mm -hmm. parked by the ER. He had gotten up to stretch his legs and take a walk, and he was the one who was able to save my life. So then that's when I started to really believe, okay, that's a miracle. What are the chances of this person um, I started to think about divine orchestration or divine organization. How far in advance was this set up? Was it when he was, you know, did an angel whisper in his ear and tell him to go do paperwork in the office? Did somebody tell him to get up and take a walk? And it really made me think that it couldn't have been an accident because too many different things had to happen on a very specific timetable in order for my life to have been saved. So right. that's when I started to believe in intervention or a plan or some kind of organization or some kind of help and i didn't understand it um but the 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 synchronicity the coincidence was too powerful that i thought to myself something is going on here it's not just random right absolutely and that's that the whole thought of people will talk about divine timing where, you know, it's or synchronicity or, you know, I I love that because, you know, people will it's they're always interested in saying, well, that's it's uh, what is the phrase a lot of people say? Like a lot of people will say, oh, that's weird because we don't else know what to say because it you don't know. There's no other word when you're when it connects. But what I love about synchronicity or coincide is, you know, it's 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 exactly what it's supposed to be. It's happening. It's connecting. It's like a connection. It's like, you know, the positive, what you put out, what you get back, it's that energy draw. So when I read that, that was another like, oh, wow, aha, I love that because you're right. Just to have him walk through at that certain time, just to have him be there, walk through the building, see the friend at that time that you were there. I mean, it's it's always just, that is the miracle. I mean, that's really, truly we have these miracles every day, and I believe that if people really tap into those miracles, they're around us all the time. They may not be, you know, they a variation of, you know, what you consider a bigger miracle or, or not such a big miracle, but the miracles are happening all the time. It's when we awaken and open our eyes. So, I mean, that was, I mean, I, I remember reading that part of the story and being like, oh, my gosh, you know, and believing in angels and talking to angels and doing this and knowing the angels are around, but and having that greater force. So it's he was your angel. And it was it was Dr. Was it, am I saying his name right? Was it Dr. Karuna? Am I saying that? Karana. Karana. Oh, Karana. Uh-huh. Okay. Karana. Yeah. So as he came through, he was the one that was able to help with this help help you well well you were in distress so he was able to kind of step in from there that's right yeah he was the one who was able to organize and supervise everything um and really take control of the situation and um and yeah he was he and diagnosed and all of this this stuff and that's where so is that when you had the near-death experience or did you not realize it till after the fact of that no it was around then so 
um, you know, I was, I, I was, um, you know, they had, the, they had realized that the heart was collapsing, and then I was being wheeled into the operating room, and it was, you know, you know, at this point, I've already had quote unquote near death experience. I've, got, I've already been clinically dead, um, but I didn't see anything, um, and I just kind of passed out. And then I was going in for this heart surgery, not an open heart, but a very invasive one, um, a pericardial window. And then, you know, I was really feeling like everything was leaving me. All of my energy was leaving the body. Um, You know, the pulse was extremely low. The pulse had been stopped. The breathing had been very low or had been stopped. And this had been going on for quite some time. And I had felt myself that I was at the end of the rope. And that's when I really felt something. And I and I knew that it was at that threshold. And, I, you know, I had been out of the body for a while, just feeling completely disconnected, not really feeling my own body, not being able to feel wet, not being able to feel my limbs. Everything's numb, and I was just consciousness. And then that's when I made this case for my life. I said, okay, I think I want to live, you know, mm-hmm. and then I felt Jesus, and I thought, uh, this is why I want to live. And I, I almost thought it this, I, it was funny is like almost like you're being adjudicated and it's like oh would the case be stronger if it's not just for me because who I was really thinking about at this time was my mom Mm. and I thought how's my mom going to get get through this and um, that's who I did the pacemaker for was really for my parents so my parents would have this peace of mind as well and um, and then you know I was making this mental case and then the next thing I know it's three days later, and I'm waking up from a coma. So the wish wow. has been granted. Yeah. Wow. So, and you say, and what I love is, even though you were you were brought up Catholic, you weren't you weren't a churchgoer. It wasn't you know that was what you were you're born into that religion. But so you weren't very mystical, spiritual in the sense of that. So I mean, you knew who Jesus was, but it wasn't like this was, you know what I mean? Like it must have been like this, to feel this sense. So it feels like you felt him because a lot of people have what I talk about and intuitively is you know clairsentient there's like clairsentient clair claircognance which is just knowing or sensing there's feeling there's seeing so would you say that you felt him around you it was almost like a presence yeah, or like a thought form my friend my friend described it really well the other day um he said touched by an angelic frequency mm. um and I think that's what it is I think that there are these um these these beings that are guiding humanity um, and that guide souls, and they they are kind of looking out for us, and we're all part of them, and they're connected to us if we call out to them, um, or they're just our guides that we might be born with, and that and that they sort of exist in a different dimension or a different frequency that you can contact through meditation or through dreams or something, or through a very extreme experience like this. You don't right. see, most average people don't see them on an average on a daily basis, but it's a huge difference because you know we're not really taught about um connection in in Roman Catholic you're taught prayers you're taught um rules you're taught very good ethics if you take it in the right way um but it's it's very different from understanding um the soul or the real spirit or the connection to um how would you say you know, it's like Jesus is a God, not so much a, a, a God to be worshipped or an idol, but not so much as, as what I feel like he really is, which is just a healing soul, um, which is a salvation or a very, very, very powerful um, way 
of, of life, a light or a frequency that, that you can connect with, that you can touch. Right. And it's something that's so hard to describe unless you've been touched by that. Um, but you can read about it a lot. You can read a lot of saints' diaries, St. Francis of Assisi, or, um, you know, many, many, many saints. And I think it's something more akin more akin to that, where it's Jesus is a part of the natural world or it's a part of the spiritual world and um, just this living light. And, uh, yeah, it, there's a huge difference between religion and relationship. And I think... Right. Um, when you start to live with more faith in your life, it comes from the place of relationship. Oh, I love that. That's so pretty. That's so beautiful. I love that. That's a, that's like a great quote. I, um, I was brought up Catholic as well and, you know, went to Catholic school and did the whole, you know, grammar school and high school, but we kind of dabbled in, you know, going to church, even though I was in church every day at school because we said our prayers, but it was, again, it was like rote and more religion and I did the Holy communion and confirmation and, but Really, as I've moved into more of my spiritual path, um, I'm more faithful now and more prayerful now. um, And it's not like a good or bad. It's just it's a very different understanding. Um, When I connect in meditation and when I pray, the feeling and the sense or, you know, I see my dreams are very clear, um, which I felt like I connected with you as well. So I've, I've gotten messages there. And I have felt um, not as, a str- as strong of a presence, but I've, I've, I'm very connected to Jesus as one of my spirit guides, masters, God, however you want to. And um, it, there's different masters and spirit guides that we can feel connected to when we connect. But I think what you said is very true because in the, in the Roman Catholic tradition, it's like you're praying to or this this. Again, it's not like the deity necessarily, but it's it's a praying to, but it's not not this relationship. So I love the way you phrase that because it's it's very true. It's very right on, really really great. So I know that. Um, so let's take us to kind of like your travels. So that's it's so exciting for me. So here you are, like going through all this, and um, oh, I just want to touch upon which I always thought was so cute. Um, share for the listeners what I know your dad would say, you know, he talked about the, um, was it the mainstream? He said, stay in the mainstream. What was he? This oh, was at the period yeah. time. So my dad's okay. like super conservative. And, um, and, you know, I had decided to go to India after um, I did a meditation program. So I did this meditation program. I came back to my parents' house, and then I was just meditating all the time after I had gotten an instruction on how to do it. And it drove him nuts because he didn't understand it. And he thought it was so weird. It it was really simple. You know, you're just sitting cross-legged, breathing with eyes closed. But I would do it for hours. And so, um, you know, we'd have breakfast together in the mornings, and he'd make a freestyle gesture with his arms, and he'd start swimming. And he'd be like, back to the mainstream, swim back to the mainstream. So he'd always be like, mainstream Karen, you know, because he thought this was getting really like – yeah, of you're getting course. you're getting out there. You were too. Well, too it's too funny weird. because at the time it was quite mild. If he only knew how far I was going to go, he'd probably totally freaked out. Yeah, I could just I could just see I could even see someone like my dad just being like, "Okay, now enough, enough, enough of this. Let's let's get back to whatever back was. You know, whatever you were doing mm-hmm. before. Like this is all a bunch of like woohoo. You know, like mm-hmm. so it always it made I saw the whole picture. I'm such a visual 
person. So I, I can see, I don't know what even what your dad looks like. I could just see like doing the swimming and I could see in the kitchen table. And it's just, it was almost like comical in the sense, because I'm like, no, she has so much to do, you know? But, um, so that was it because everyone, there was probably so many people that wanted you to, you know, here you are, you, you were in London, you were on your path of success, you were living your so-called dream, and now you're meditating in your bedroom. So, <laughs> right, right, right. Exactly, exactly. So you go to India, and um, I just, I guess, want to touch upon because there's, there's so much that there's so much in this book. So I did on my, I know you can't see this, Karen, but I have a chat room, so I posted the Amazon link, and that's on my Facebook mm, page, cool. so uh-huh. people can see that. But um. And I don't think I've shared with you. I went to India in 2011 to 2012. So we left. I I traveled with three other women. We were all yoga teachers, but we didn't teach yoga while we were there. And it was such an experience of my life. Um, I didn't do a teacher training. I didn't go to an ashram. We really traveled from southern India pretty much up to like, uh, we didn't go as far as Rishikesh. We stopped at Pune at the Iyengar Institute, and we did Aurangabad, which is like the caves. So we did. We started out in Goa, and then we moved up. But India in general, I still dream of it, and I can smell, mm. which I know you know that smell. Mm. Um, when we got off the plane, the first it was December twenty sixth, when we landed, two thousand eleven. That smell has never left me. That when I dream, when I, I smell that smell. It's not even a bad smell anymore. You know, if I told everybody it's burning dung, they're like, huh? Uh-huh. But when so when I was reading about India, it brought things back because even though I wasn't an ashram and we stayed in hotels, so we didn't rough it by any means. Um, there was a lot of faith there because here you are now in this third world country, and it's you know the food is different, the place is different, and now you're immersing yourself in all these spiritual practices and meditation. But one of the things that, and I could talk so much about this, but one of the things that really stood out to me because I'd seen things similar to this, was the boy with the flip-flops on his hands. So maybe you could just talk a little bit about that and how, you know, probably inspiring he was and and also how hard and challenging it is to see him at the time that you were there. Well, okay, so what happened was um, at the time that I left for for India, and India is a really fun section of the book. It's super, super, super nice. Like I was just talking to my sister today, and and she said her favorite part is India because there's a scene where I have a driver, and he's driving me five hours um, from New Delhi to this this city called Rishikesh. And he he was telling me, he's like this young guy, he's 23, and his passion is ballroom dancing. And he takes classes every week. And he had this ballroom dancing partner, and they had arranged a date. They were in the process of arranging a date to put in some extra practice, and his phone went dead. And as soon as his phone went dead, it's like the whole mood changed. He just couldn't relax. He couldn't enjoy himself until we got to a city where I could give him money so he could call the girl back and, and, <laughs> and fix his ballroom dancing date. So it's filled with, like, really, like, unexpected, super cute vignettes, stuff like that. Each chapter is, like, a different vignette, a different lesson, maybe a focus on a different person or a different experience I have in India, like going to an astrologer or going to the meditation hall um, or, you know, what the food is like and getting attacked by monkeys, like crazy stuff. Right. And so the boy with the flip-flops on his hand, it's a, it's a very specific chapter. And um, it's one of my favorite in the in the whole book because it's really, I, I find it really powerful. And um, 
So the story was was that we were living in an ashram in a city, and outside there was um, a boy, and he was his his figure, his skeleton was very distorted. And I remember seeing him because he walked on his hands and knees, and he would put flip flops on his hands to guard his hands from the from the from the the street, the litter of the street. And it was so depressing to see him because your heart just broke. Like, and you know, your perspective changes completely because you know when I had arrived in India, I was in a lot of pain, uh, physically, emotionally, mentally, and then you start to realize how lucky we actually are. And it's it sounds a little bit like privileged white girl going to India, like, oh, God, I'm so lucky, but it's really transformative. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I would see this kid, and I would wonder about him. Um, but, you know, I was engrossed in my own studies, and then I was, you know, trying to do what I could, but just I had noticed him. And then one day we had a, a teacher, and she gave a lecture. and She had been teaching at this particular um in the city year after year, and she brought him up. She knew him. So I thought, oh, that's him. And she said that she had met him a few years ago on the street, and she had started, you know, she was curious about his situation because it seemed so, so uh, unique. And she said, uh, oh, who, you know, who do you live with? Do you live with, do you live with your family? And he's like, oh, oh no, you know, my brother is in such and such city, and my parents, I don't know where they are, they blah, blah, blah. And she said to him, oh, so you live alone. And he said, alone? Oh, no, I don't live alone. I'm with God. Wow. She says, what? You mean you live alone? He goes, oh, no, 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 I'm never alone. God is always with me. Wow. And that reinforced what I had experienced in the hospital, which was that I never felt the force of God so much as when I was on that precipice, when I felt alone. Um, and then I realized that there was a God, and that there was a force that was with me or something that was helping. And I'd never felt that before. And here you are, and you meet, when you do feel that, your whole life changes because your whole perspective will change. And then, um, you know, it's like here, it's like, okay, maybe, you know, you have the perspective where you're pitying this child so much, but you realize that inside he's the master and you're not, you're the mm. fool because he's the one who knows what is really the spiritual truth. And he doesn't just intellectually know it. He lives and he breathes it every single moment, which is that he knows that you're connected to the creator. The creator is always there taking care of every need and that you're never really alone, ever, no matter how lonely we might feel. And so she continued with the story. And so he told her this, and she was really struck by that, like, wow, okay, big reveal. And then she, you know, she helped the, the kid out. She arranged uh, for him to, um, you know, to, to have a place to sleep. And then she was taking him shopping to buy sweaters because it gets quite cold there. And she, um, he picked out a sweater. And then when she took him to get a second sweater, he was, mm-hmm. like, totally perplexed. And mm-hmm. he didn't understand that, why is she prodding him to get a second sweater? And he's like, but I already have one. And it was just this again, like a total revelation that our needs are so much more simple than what we think that they are. And, you know, it, when I was in this ashram, my needs were completely simple. You know, when I'm in the States, I'm like, oh, maybe I'll get this shirt. Maybe I'll do this. I need this iTunes or something like that. But <laughs> in this place, I didn't need anything. I needed, like, calories 
and that was it. Calories and something to not be naked, and that was it, because you're totally engaged in a different dimension of life. And you realize that our needs are actually quite simple and that the excess drive for these needs constantly is what's really taking um, you know, most of humanity totally, totally out of balance. Um, so, so uh, you know, the message there is that you're never alone, and that, and that we we should be satisfied with less. And it's very right. easy to be satisfied with less, right. less material, less material, right. more spiritual. Yeah. Right. I can say. Yeah, I can say that even though I haven't witnessed that um, the young boy, that when I was in India, it it struck me. This is this was a very deep. It stayed with me for a very long time and still does on a daily basis that whoever I met, and we traveled from city to city, so we'd be, you know, three days and two days and then coming. So we were in different areas. And the one thing I can say was that they really, truly listened. And and people, I would come back and people would say, what was your best part? Tell me about India. And I, it was so hard to say as much as I wanted to. But I paraphrased it for myself. And it's almost actually makes me like almost want to cry because it was really hard to actually come back to the States as a yoga teacher, as a person, as a mom, um, just being here. Because when I was there, whoever I met looked me straight in the eye. They mm. really, really saw me. And they, they, it was almost uncomfortable in the beginning because they would just look at you and be engrossed in what you had to say. They weren't scanning your body up and down and checking out your shirt or your necklace or, you know, whatever. And they were pausing and they were breathing and they were connected. And I remember the first time it happening with a woman selling her wares on the beach and her children were selling them as well. And she was just talking to me, but I almost couldn't stand in her presence at first because we had just gotten there and they really truly see you. It's almost like that that line, I don't know where that is, like, I really see you. I really, really see you. And I remember coming back, and again, I wasn't there very long. It was only three weeks. And I came back, and I remember telling one of my girlfriends, Maria, who I traveled with, that I just couldn't teach yoga anymore. I couldn't teach yoga here in the States, and I couldn't even connect. I said, I'm having a really hard time. Are you having a hard time? And I said, everybody here is just, it, it was so hard for me to re come back to this, come back to New York. I'm right outside of Manhattan, right? It's East Coast. And, and yoga is not yoga, like compared there, like it was totally different. And the people were so different. And But instead of me going the other way, I realized that this was such a gift that I was given, that they really see other people. They They accept them and they are purely, purely seeing them. They see their soul. And that's mm. what we, a lot of us don't do. And so it reminded me so much of that story when I read the story about the boy with the flip-flops because, you know, I would they, there's so much gratitude and there's so much connection to the to God. They they don't they don't hesitate. It's like no, there's a God. You know, they don't worry about semantics and what people are going to think if they say there's God. <laughs> you know, where we're everyone's right. afraid okay. to say God or light. Uh-huh. They're like, oh, well, we'll say light or we'll say universe. Um, but that struck me so so much. So uh, I I love that I love that part. Um, I know we're running. Believe it or not, we have about twelve minutes. So I just want to kind of, out of all the places you visited, I know India was it's it has, it's so colorful. Um, 
what other place would you like to touch on for our listeners? Because I know that we have, you know, Italy, Bhutan, and Israel. Is there any one? Because I know we won't be able to talk, talk about all of the other places. Um, sure. Um, maybe Jerusalem. Yeah, yeah. You know, I know she shouldn't play favorites and all the places were super awesome, but um, Jerusalem was a big surprise for me. And, uh, you know, I had a friend who before she told me, she goes, make sure you spend at least this amount of time there because she's like, because once you get there, you just don't want to leave. And that's exactly what it was like. Um, this this place is awesome. I don't know what the safety is like at right now at this given moment, um, but that place is really interesting because it is like you can feel the energy. You can feel that it's an energy spot. Some so cliche, um, but, you know, when you have so many people from all over the world that are going for pilgrimage, you know, for whatever their religion, for Muslim, for Judaic, um, for Christian, and... Um, you know, there's there's conflict there, but there's also tremendous light, and there's literally light. Like you've never seen light like this before. When the light sets on the city, and you're like, this is what it looked like thousands of years ago, and it's just like this incredible um, combination of like history and spirituality and culture and food and personality. And just a different blend of everything, because you've got the Arabic, you've got the Judaic, and each thing has its own flavor. Um, super, super cool. So really unexpected at, at kind of, quote-unquote, how well done it is, because it's very, it's very well done. It's like a fantasy. So that, and so you you went to, and I'm not going to remember the place, because um, when you were there, you, was that where the Last Supper was or where the room was? Was it a temple? I'm forgetting now yeah, if it was it's, um, church. It's interesting. It's called um, it's called King David's Tomb, and it's a synagogue. Okay. So there's a rumor that, um, you know, before Jesus went into the garden, they had this Last Supper at a synagogue on the hill. So it's been identified in this hill. There's this ancient synagogue in the hill. It's It's been rebuilt for sure. Um, and there's a tomb a tomb of a very, uh, very ancient tomb of a rabbi. And um, so in this particular place, it's become a worship site for um, Jews, Christians, and Arabs because there's an Arabic minaret. So it's kind of like a meeting place where all three meet in in peace. So throughout Jerusalem, you have very important sites for Arabs, Christians, and Muslims, but they're all separate. And in this particular place, which is on a hill, um, it's, it's all on one location in one building that's sort of divided into three parts. Um, so, you know, you can enjoy all three or you could just go visit the one that you feel really, like, close to. Um, but that, that, was, that was really interesting because it's a place where all three religions come together. And I didn't, I didn't know about it um, until I got there. Like, I, I wouldn't have thought that the, you know, Jesus was the world's most famous Jew. So, of course, uh, the Last Supper place could be in an inn, Jewish inn or a synagogue. Um, right. But it, it, I, did, I didn't make the connection until I until I got there. So, right, yeah, I I had no idea. I mean, I learned so much historically by your book because just just historically, I, I learned so much about places, and you know, I didn't know about certain you know even parts of. I've been I've never been to Israel, and I've always inspired to go there, and so I, I you know, it was all very unknown to me. So it was all very very cool. Um, so I guess let's bring us a little bit to present day. Um, so after all your journeys, what did you? Were you writing a memoir? Did you have a journal throughout your journeys, or did you always know you were writing a book? How did the book come up, come up, like up, come upon? 
Um, so when I went to India, I already brought my laptop and I was already writing notes. Um, you know, so at that point, I had been I had basically been horizontal for two years because of my surgeries, and I did nothing but read books and watch films. So I was like, okay, I'm kind of like into this, you know, <laughs> you know like oh, and write emails. I had to write emails, so I'd like write my friends emails about you know my physical therapy and you know what I was doing, and just kind of tried to make it amusing and make a lot of jokes. So that's sort of how it started. And then when I went to India, I brought the laptop because I was already in the habit of writing these emails all the time. And I thought, oh, okay, I'm just going to take a few notes because I'm going to want to remember this. I want to remember like what I'm learning from my courses. And then I already had it in mind. Okay, maybe this is like a book. And then I, I don't think I told you this story, but I had been sending out the, I had been sending out the, um, a proposal for a few years, and I got a response from a New York City literary agent after quite some time. <laughs> it wasn't right away, and he said, "Oh, this is really great. Do you have some extra chapters?" So I would send it to his assistant, and then eventually I said, "Hey guys, what did you decide?" You know, because I kept on asking me for more, but then I didn't hear back. It was like an unrequited love affair and and then you know ultimately i got the rejection and the agency was like you know really cool project we wish you the best we literally don't have time to take it on so at this point in my mind i was still like okay now i want to make a book and i had just kept on going and my sister woke up one day and she had the name of a person and long story short the name of that person literally led to uh, a publishing offer and I went back to the original agent that had turned me down and I said I need your help to make the contract. Oh wow. Would you be interested? Yeah, and that's how um that's that's how everything got got started and it ended up with Hay House. So by the wow. time that I was going to Israel, I already had the book contract um and I knew that Israel was going to be in the book. Um, and that was my dream. So when I was talking with Hay House, they're like, what's the end? And I said, I'm going to Israel. <laughs> this That's thing so is going to come full circle. I yeah. love it. So I it was sort it. of like that. Yeah. So cool. So we have about six minutes left. So I just wanted, do you want to just share with the listeners uh, where you're going to be? I know you're doing the, uh, is it the I Can Do It in Denver? Where, or yeah, that's right. Anywhere? I Can okay. Do It in Denver. Um, I think it's Sunday. Which is Hay House, Denver. right? That's okay. Hay House. It's a huge conference. We've got Wayne Dyer on Friday night. And then a lot of great Hay House speakers um, all day Saturday, all day Sunday. And I'll be speaking on the Sunday. So you can um, check that out on hayhouse.com or you can just Google I Can Do It Denver. Um, and then, yeah, I'm just then after that I'm just working on the next book. So it's going to oh, be good. a continuation, like a sequel to this one. Yeah. Oh, we're so, oh i got to have you back. I'm so excited. That's so. Awesome. so they can just find you, I guess, just to um, – oh, so let me just tell everybody, uh, KarenHensonJones.com. Right. And yeah, I guess you'll right. just do your website wherever you're going to be, uh, you know, book tours or I know you did a talk and I already included that authors at Google and Mountain View um, and go check her out at Hay House. I can do it in Denver. Um, well, thank you so very much, Karen. I you, you so have inspired you. me and I feel like we could talk forever. And um, thank you for our talk on Monday and all your help and guidance. And um, thank you for your for your story, for really allowing us to to hear it, to bring it into our life, and really about that transformation. And we're just I know everyone's going to take away what they need to from this, and uh, what a beautiful teaching. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Have a great day, everybody. You too. Bye-bye. Okay, lots of love. Bye. You too. Blessings. So everybody, that was such a fantastic show. It goes always too fast. 
please check it out again if you'd like to on our podcast. And you can reach Karen through her website, KarenHentonJones.com. Also, uh, go check her out in Denver. Hey House, I can do it in Denver. She'll be speaking there. Um, Much light and blessings to all of you. May you feel transformed and inspired. Karen's book is available on Amazon, Heart of Miracles, Journey Back from a Near-Death Life Experience. Thank you so very much. Many, many blessings. Namaste. They said you wouldn't make it so far And ever since they said it, it's been hard But never mind the night you had to cry Cause you had never let it go inside You worked too hard and you know exactly what you want And need so believe And you can never give up, you can reach a goal Talk to your 